So it is my pleasure and honor to introduce Dr. Bruce Ragsdale. Uh, Dr. Ragsdale, with almost 40 years' experience, was trained in dermatopathology by Drs. Wallace, Wallace Clark, Martin Mim, George Murphy, and David Elder. He authored chapters in the 1997, 2005, and 2008 editions of Lever's Histopathology of the Skin, also Chapter 9, Skin Tumors, for the third edition of Principles and Practice of Surgical Pathology and Cytology. Dr. Ragsdale has a special interest in skeletal and soft tissue diseases and has published much original work in these fields. Dr. F.M. Enzinger was his supervisor at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology for nine years. While in private practice, he simultaneously, he was, excuse me, simultaneously the principal investigator for sarcomas in the five-year congressionally mandated CDC study to determine the risks for selected cancers among Vietnam veterans, the Agent Orange study. This interest and expertise in mesenchymal lesions is a special asset when consulting on dermal and subcutaneous problems. And today he's going to talk to us about the value of biopsy in dermatologic conundrums. Please welcome Dr. Bruce Ragsdale. Gary's too kind. We're actually just about neighbors. His office and mine are separated by about seven minutes by car, and we have meetings over there once a month for regional dermatologists. It was really, it was going home for me in 97, um, so my office is 10 miles from where I was uh, born. So it's been a long trip back, but I still do what I love to do, which is to achieve correlations between uh, the patient, which I get to see in Gary's office and others, uh, with uh, what the biopsy shows and tie the two together, often with clinical laboratory uh, results, which of course is the successful way to do this. Uh, histopathology alone is a look through a keyhole, but you all have uh, the advantage of the whole room. It's not a peek through a keyhole. You see the patient. It's the whole, whole, whole uh, room, especially when correlated with the histology. Um, I've uh, got an idea from Gary, in fact, that you might uh, like to just go through a few of these uh, correlative uh, exercises. And so I'm going to, to uh, proceed in that fashion, uh, at least initially, and we'll see how it goes if I get the trigger figured out. So I like to think of it this way. You see, I've been doing these shows for a while. Remember Kodachromes? Probably not. Uh, but uh, here's, the, here's the clinical and here's the histopathology, and it makes a solid bridge for a uh, confident diagnosis when putting the two together. Well, as uh, my handout indicates, I think the shortest route to a definitive diagnosis is an adequate tissue biopsy. And here we can see a melanoma a uh, rather world-class example. Um, the only thing is that, was, that, was, that, that hand was amputated for S100 positive melanoma cells in 1933. And uh, I was uh, um, changing its formalin the other day because it got a little yellow after all of that time. 
And so I thought, Gary sent me over this biopsy device, and I'm going to confirm that diagnosis of melanoma. And so here you see a mitosis that's been frozen in time for 75 years. Just hasn't been able to complete it. And so then it goes back in the pot uh, as a uh, specimen uh, for teaching uh, purposes. Uh, that lady, 38 years old, survived this melanoma. 12 years, I know. I read her handwritten chart at Mass General, and it caused her no further difficulty. She did her nails right up to the end, too, before they took it off. Now, my allies in back, am I going to push number four, or do I push that one? By way of review, epidermis, uh, dermis with skin appendages, and the all-important uh, vascular supply, which has a superficial and a deep plexus, both of arterioles and uh, veins. And where inflammation occurs around these vessels gives a differential by way of algorithm, keying one into possibilities in inflammatory dermatitis. So that's a very important anatomic fact we have to understand and then plunge into what uh, some of the uh, histo pictures might look like. Well, here is a, we would describe this as a superficial perivascular dermatitis, rather mild, with surrounding edema, and there was no epidermal change. So this is urticaria, and you can see examples of this in an individual who uh, had uh, indulged in Thai food. Now, you see these coming through on reports, these words that I'm going to speak and are written. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to, to uh, postulate diagnoses as we, as we look at this. So if the words say superficial perivascular dermatitis, uh, that means around the superficial vessels are clusters of mononuclear inflammatory cells. With spongiosis, now spongiosis is nothing more than edema that's worked its way between the keratinocytes. And look how it looks opened up like a, a lace. Well, that's because there's fluid there. It can get so intense locally that it uh, creates what are called spongiotic microvesicles. They're vesicles, and it looks like a sponge. What condition would most likely have this with a whole bunch of eosinophils? Well, it could be numular dermatitis, uh, bed bugs, drug reaction, atopic dermatitis. This fellow was a gambler, and he was allergic, unfortunately, to playing cards. Paper has formalin in it and so forth, and uh, that was ultimately traced to his, his indulgence. Uh, here is uh, another set that those prior slides would fit. And it shows how important uh, history and your full exam of the patient might be. Um, he could have poison ivy with that picture, would look the same. It could be a nickel allergy to a buckle. Could be the gloves he used to skin out some poor animal. Or it could be a photoallergic uh, process with something in skin acting as a, a trigger. What if we said 
lymphocytic exocytosis and spongiosis. That's where lymphocytes from the inflammatory process below enter the epidermis. And they can do so in great numbers and actually cut it away from the basement membrane and create then a subepidermal bullous chamber. So what condition might we predict is going to show up next on the screen? with maybe a targetoid appearance. Well, you guessed it. If it erythema multiforme, or even the extreme uh, toxic epidermal uh, necrolysis. What about psoriasis hyperplasia? Hyperplasia means increase in cell numbers. And in this instance, it's thickening up the epidermis. Psoriasiform uh, means marked elongation of reti, as you see uh, here. We also have a superficial perivascular and interstitial dermatitis. Here, neutrophils have entered the epidermis and collected up towards the stratum corneum. And this is called uh, uh, neutrophilic uh, spongiosis. Back to that word spongiosis, meaning something between the keratinocytes. What's the condition? Starts with a P. <laughs> of course, it's psoriasis with all of the typical expressions. Um, uh, you know, I was uh, mostly doing bone path for 10 years. And so I said, oh, heck, I'm plateaued on that. Um, so I did a uh, derm path fellowship at University of Pennsylvania. And it's, it's, uh, there are so many skin and bone syndromes that go together. Psoriasis is, is one of those. So um, sometimes I think I just said it so I could say, I'm just skin and bones. And it's, sometimes it gets a laugh, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, well, let's look at lichenoid dermatitis with cytotoxic interface involvement. You've heard those words. That mean, lichenoid means it's like the lichen on a rock. It's a flat plaque-like thing, and in this instance, it's referring to a dermatitis, so it's a solid band of inflammation, lichenoid dermatitis. With cytotoxic interface involvement means those lymphocytes are going in and raising heck with the lower epidermal keratinocytes. They're actually going up to them and like stinging them, so they shudder, takes about three hits before the cell dies and turns into a little red body called uh, eponymically the savat body. So here we have a spiky epidermal change trying to regenerate with wedge-shaped uh, granular uh, uh, layer and compact orthokeratin. And the condition is, starts with an L, like in planus. So Imagine the sheet of lymphocytes underlying this epidermis and causing an increased turnover as the epidermis tries to hold things together as cells along the undersurface are being killed. Necrobiotic granulomatous inflammation. Well, that means the center is dead and it uh, no longer has blue nuclear staining because when the cell dies, the DNA diffuses out. It's gone. Uh, and so uh, it, it only picks up 
in the conventional hematoxyl and eosin stain. It only picks up the protein staining part, which is eosin. Hematoxylin stains nuclei, and you can see the blue nuclei in a rim of histiocytes. So uh, we speak of granulomatous inflammation when histiocytes are the predominant cell, and you can see them uh, in, in this uh, instance. And the condition that might have granulomas in dermis, dermis would be classically granuloma annulare is going to have this histology. Uh, well, watch out. It could be tuberculosis or it could be sarcoidosis. It could be a fungal infection. All of those things might create a very similar picture, hence the value of special stains being performed before one writes it off as granuloma annulare. Next string of words are superficial and deep. Superficial and deep. Remember the two plexes that are there. Perivascular dermatitis, meaning it's grouped around the vessels, it's not diffuse. With interface involvement, and that's uh, similar to what we saw in the lichen planus histology, where the lymphocytes are ganging up on the keratinocytes and actually killing them. Now, with inflammatory activity over an extended period of time, a basement membrane will get thickened. The, the sheet of specialized collagen that separates epidermis from dermis. And this thickened basement membrane with compact orthohyperkeratosis and interface inflammation uh, triggers an association of findings for a specific disease that is characterized by immunoglobulin dis, uh, deposition in that basement membrane, and the diagnosis is lupus. Of course, uh, it has many expressions, but a fairly similar pathology, except in the devastating phospholipid, uh, antiphospholipid uh, syndrome, where a lot more is going on. But discoid and uh, SLE uh, look pretty much the same under the microscope. I suppose you'd buy this as a, as a vesicle, but where is it? It's not sub-epidermal, because look, there are cells adhering to the basement membrane. So it's an intra-epidermal vesicle. Looking at higher power, the basal keratinocytes tend to hang on for dear life here, then liken to a row of tombstones. When uh, a look at immunofluorescence occurs, there's a net-like deposition of IgG between every keratinocyte. And it's apparent that immune mechanisms have cut away these cells, one from another, in the stratum spinosum, the mid-zone region of epidermis. And it has just turned into individual scattered cells and now uh, some hemorrhage. And so you'd be thinking of a vesicular disease clinically, and you'd like to predict what it is. Anybody? Uh, in this case, it's real pemphigus, pemphigus vulgaris. Uh, this woman's pemphigus vulgaris was uh, concurrent 
uh, with pregnancy, which of course creates special problems in how to turn it around uh, in, in her particular situation. Oral involvement is so typical, as you know. Well, uh, one point that was in the handout was, point two, care must be taken to secure a representative, adequate, and artifact-free specimen. If forceps are applied right to where the action is, this is what I'm going to see. It's going to be like an hourglass there. And because it hasn't hit formalin yet, these cells are very malleable. And here's what they're going to come out looking like squashed remnants of their former selves. You can see no detail here at all. Even the keratinocytes, which were near the uh, point of uh, squish, have this homogeneous dark uh, appearance to them. If that's a melanocytic lesion, I'm in real trouble. You know? And in turn, you are, because uh, we want a high-quality histology to see nuclear detail and to come to a decision as to whether something is benign or malignant. Oh, uh, here's a recent case. I couldn't resist getting a little silly. One day, Mr. Bill had a skin biopsy. We found it squashed between the lid and the edge of the jar. It never did see formalin, you know? It was high and dry in there. Uh, so here's the impression of the uh, threads in the jar on this poor little squashed skin biopsy. And again, it's um, unreadable. And when you are there, consider splitting a specimen or getting a second one for culture. So often, we wish we had it after the fact. Uh, this is a happy ending to an unusual coxy case. You can see the coxy spherule here. And uh, this fellow had a pulmonary syndrome, obviously his valley fever, about four months before he began breaking out on his nose with this result. And I can't help thinking that the contaminated secretions from <coughs> his uh, valley fever in the chest were implanted on his nose directly, like in a background, let's say, of acne or something, rather than being a hematogenous dissemination. Again, uh, after a year with fluconazole, he, he simmered down. But I, you know, being a risk taker, I guess, as Gary can testify, I did what I'm not supposed to do. I lifted the lid on that puff ball and took out uh, some of this material for a wet mount showing the boxcar-like hyphae articulation, so-called arthrospores. Individually, they are infective, and that's what's flying around, having, coming out, having come out of the rodent burrows, uh, and uh, then are inhaled, and each one can turn into one of those spherules, which then rupture and kick out a whole bunch of progeny, each of whom uh, create in turn a spherule. There have actually been lab fatalities where somebody opens one of these in front of an air conditioner and blows a big dose down the workbench way. But uh, So anyway, it was kind of interesting to close the door and, and, and do that. Well, I gave that one away, didn't I? Ah, well, here we are. This is what it looks like at our place after Gary's on his way home. Because, uh, you know, when you quit work, we just begin work. And that's what it looks like outside, because we got to get those slides out in the morning. Uh, and whereas, you know, you're done, but uh, certainly we, we are not. And here comes this, the sun again. Now, I'm going to see if I can back up, because uh, 
I wanted to, to show this uh, typical tumor case. It's basal cell cancer. It always starts up from the basal cells, and you can see it hanging down here as a redundancy, like icicles, off of the epidermis. And in time, these cells break off and have little groups then that proliferate and create uh, expansile nests in the dermis. Um, here is encirclement uh, around a nerve, which, of course, has a potential. It's a potential space is what it is. It's sort of like my, my hand, arm is the nerve and my coat sleeve is the loose connective tissue around it. If basal cell gets into that space, it can kind of squirt along like toothpaste and get carried a centimeter or more out of the operative field that looks like it's uh, clear. So when you see basal cell carcinoma with perineural, and if, when you see perineural invasion in your report, you might want to consider dropping back and doing a, a little bit uh, more. And then here's a whole host of typical basal cells. And maybe we can get by the busy lab now into the next. Because um, our area, Gary and my area, see such incredible cases that when I go on the road with stuff like this, they've begun to call me the derm path from Area 51. And, and so this, I mean, we, when, we see, when we see a basal cell, it's a woman who has hidden this arm in a uh, muff for 20 years and only came in when she developed pathologic fracture of both forearm bones because the cancer grew down in there and gnawed away on the radius and ulna until uh, it fractured. Because I teach... Um, Archaeologists and uh, um, anthropologists, dry bone diagnosis, I'll take a specimen like this and reduce it to dry bone so as to uh, be able to put this out and, and teach that group with entirely different needs. This fellow has a tissue expander on his head getting ready to cut out this penetrating basal cell cancer that uh, completely fills his frontal sinus went down clear to the uh, brain surface, in fact, but was taken out with the upper part of an orbit and the uh, frontal bone, etc. And you can see the erosive changes that a basal cell cancer is capable of once it gains uh, access to bone. It's uh, a real jackpot at that time. But what I tell my anthropologists and archaeologists is, basal cell cancer in antiquity, you ain't looking for a pencil eraser end. You're looking for this, and you're looking for this, because that's what it would look like in 1000 AD. So, the derm path from Area 51. Uh, that's actually Morro Rock. Gary's office is over here in San Luis Obispo. And this appears in um, the new Indiana Jones movie, if you've seen it, for about four and a half seconds. There's maps all around the periphery of it, because he's going to South America, and they use this picture with a 1930s airplane right here. And it isn't South America at all. Well, my son works for Sony. He does special effects. And he sent me this picture three months before the movie came out, which he probably shouldn't have done. But anyway, I said, oh, Soren, that's great. 
Why don't you take out the airplane, though? I got used for that. Put in a flying saucer. It took him about 12 minutes to do it. Melanocytic lesions. High on the list, of course, in terms of lawsuits. Right up there, maybe number three. Uh, the way melanosomes are, the number of melanocytes in various uh, races is the same throughout the body. It's how the melanocytes are packaged that's different. In Caucasians, they're in groups like this, you see? This is in electron microscopy. These dark footballs are the melanosomes. Uh, in darker races, they are single and scattered about in the cytoplasm. They are made in the melanocyte and then sent up uh, tentacle-like projections that ramify out between keratinocytes, particularly in the basal layers, and they actually inject melanosomes into the keratinocytes, which do a clever little thing. The keratinocyte arranges them over its nucleus, like a little umbrella over its head. And it's really quite intricate because that's where the UV's coming from, from the outside world. So it's like a little group of melanosomes as a hat over the nucleus, quite intricate. And so you get these hypochondriacs coming into your office like this guy and uh, who you might recognize. Uh, oh, I've got an ulcerated uh, lesion here. Gary, would you shave it off for me? Let's find out what it is. And it's a big question mark. Um, it didn't amount to anything. But uh, I thought I'd go over then just the common nevi and what they, what they look like and how, why we call them such. Junctional nevus is going to be flat, and it's just where melanocytes occur uh, in the lower epidermis. And they can have a rather expansile nest appearance and be completely benign, particularly in younger people. Younger people have larger nests like this in a junctional nevus than uh, older folks. Of course, if I saw this at, let's say, 80, I'd be down there under high power magnification checking out the nuclear appearances because I wouldn't expect to see that in older uh, age. If you add to that a few nests in the dermis, as seen here, you have then a compound nevus. It's compound because it's got two parts. It's got junctional, just same as here, and it's got uh, a dermal components. So here's the dermal nests, and here's the intraepidermal nests along the elongate reti. Uh, and, and, of course, you do get this epidermal folding commonly uh, over nevi. If one has only dermal cell nests, then you have the common... Uh, intradermal nevus, and here we have uh, nests showing up only in dermis, nothing anymore in the epidermis. It is uh, the common prevailing thought now, uh, it has been for, I don't know, maybe a century, that nevi start out as junctional, become compound, and then the cells at the end of a period of time drop into dermis and create an intradermal nevus only over time. So one would tend not to see an intradermal nevus in a very young uh, patient. An important uh, concept, I believe, is uh, that of the dysplastic nevus spearheaded by Dr. Wallace Clark, who was a teacher of mine, uh, 
in that he pointed out if a person has irregular nevi with variegated color, especially more than a six millimeter size and has a lot of them, their melanoma risk is markedly elevated over an individual who does not have such peculiar nevi. They even look strange under the dermatoscope, of course, where more details can be shown and different patterns of extension along that junctional zone. What gives them the peculiar faded edge, so they aren't sharp, is this extension of the junctional component peripherally well beyond the dermal component. This is called a shoulder zone on a nevus. There's also, in a dysplastic nevus, which has certain criteria required to use that term, what is called uh, concentric fibroplasia. You can see fibrosis around the periphery here and underlying it. So there might be lamellar and or concentric fibroplasia around elongate reti with the nests along the junction. It is of interest that there are many organ parallels for cancer arising in a setting of fibrosis, um, uh, such as car uh, scar carcinoma in the lung, uh, such as old gasoline burn scars, growing squamous cell. And so it suggests that there's something going on along the undersurface of a dysplastic nevus, likely some immune battle uh, that is smoldering, even as the pathologic melanocytes, which are well shown here, increase in atypia over time. Now, atypia means large uh, and irregular and dark. Nuclei are supposed to be small, oval, and uh, uniformly colored with smooth membranes. A major criterion for dysplastic nevus is to have outliers, cells that are too big and too irregular uh, beyond the range of uh, normal. They also tend to what is called bridge adjacent reti like this. So what we do is, because we believe there is a tendency for increasing mutation accumulation, for which there's a lot of good basic science evidence, that these cells over time evolve towards and finally become melanoma, it's been a custom to grade the atypia traditionally into three levels, mild, moderate, and severe. Nobody insists on re-excision of a nevus that would only have mild atypia. But when you get into moderate and certainly severe, and that would be severe, and it goes to the edge of the specimen, all bets are off on what lies beyond. It might have uh, eventuated in melanoma at the periphery already, no telling. And accordingly, it, might, it would be wise to, to re-excise. We like to know 
on requisitions, and it is ever so helpful. How big is it? Uh, is your bio, is your, did you do a biopsy or a complete excision in your opinion? Uh, and has it changed? And fourth, does it look like the rest of the moles on that particular patient? Because the one you want to pick is the one termed the ugly duckling, the one that looks different from the other uh, pigmented lesions on that particular patient. They can have funny moles, but if they all look funny in the same direction, that's much less of a concern. This is Wallace Clark. Uh, this is Davis El Dave Elder now at UPenn. Wallace is uh, deceased. Uh, Marty Mim and Dave are his immediate uh, successors in the forefront of uh, research on pigmented lesions, as uh, was our recently departed uh, uh, Dr. Ackerman. Um, now, they were, they were at so-called loggerheads about the significance of the dysplastic nevus, however. Uh, Dr. Clark believing there were stepwise mutations that led to melanoma, and Dr. Ackerman believing that it was a coincidence if melanoma arose in a dysplastic nevus, as is being demonstrated up here. Um, obviously, I'm a little uh, um, jaded by uh, the camp I was raised in, but I've listened long and hard to both arguments, and I see it about 25% of the time when I have a melanoma, this big dark area, of course, it's situated in a dysplastic nevus, about 25% of melanomas. Uh, now, that doesn't give license for wholesale ex uh, extirpation of dysplastic nevi, however. No one uh, advocates that. But what all this... Re this fight in fighting, and boy, it got it got boisterous. Uh, what it reminds me of is the 1960s controversy over whether polyps of the colon become cancer or not. My department chairman at Mass General, Dr. Benjamin Castleman, was vehement that cancers started between the polyps. They never started in a polyp. We'd show him a polyp, and he'd somehow he'd rationalize it uh, with cancer in it, and somehow he'd rationalize it away. Um, and so he was like the Ackerman pole. All of the melanomas start in between the nevi, and they're not important. There was a Basil Morrison from England, and when he walked into the lab, because he was the big guy on polyps are the seedbed for carcinoma in the colon. Uh, and boy, the two of them, sparks would fly when they began talking. Uh, well, time has solidly proven Morrison was right and Castleman was wrong. Uh, polyps are a, a very common cause, if not the major substrate for cancer in the colon. And I am uh, confident the same will be uh, firmly accepted as uh, basic science goes on to do... Uh, uh, genomic analyses of uh, atypical nevi of various grades as they progress. A bit about melanoma from a pathologist standpoint. Sir James Paget lived in England in the late 1800s, um, and 
was first to notice that a crusted female breast nipple would have cancer cells that have come up the ducts and colonized the epidermis. And it looks very much like this, and he published that, and it became known as Paget's disease of the nipple, as you know, the clear cells being the cancer cells. It didn't take long before it was obvious that early melanomas do this same thing. They start out, sure, along the junction, which they solidly colonize along there, but then, being cancer cells, they're slippery. Cancer cells lose the attachments to their fellows. It's like, every cell for yourself now, go for it. And accordingly, they're easily carried up by the proliferating keratinocytes, which start down here and end up as the flakes. And so the melanoma cells, being loosely attached to anything, are just kind of carried up like uh, ping pong balls. And we can use a special stain, such as the so-called MART1 stain, to label the melanocytes and bring it out very convincingly. So here is the same area, successive cuts on two slides that brought up the same paraffin block, one stained with the so-called hematoxyl neosin and the other with this MART1 preparation. Here's a higher view, and you can see these cells have excessive uh, uh, dark coloration, irregularity, and they are enlarged. Talk about atypia, they're over the line, and this is uh, melanoma. Of course, then they massively increase if the lesion is not nipped in the in situ stage, and then the epidermis can get all ratty like this due to proliferation of these cells as they drop down into dermis and begin to grow and expand and look for a blood vessel, which is the subway system of the body, of course, and to go do some mischief elsewhere. We look for margins in melanoma, and here's what we might see and pronounce that in situ melanoma, meaning it hasn't spread into dermis at this rim region anyway, in situ melanoma, continuous proliferation along the junction between dermis and epidermis, reaches the rim, and that's why we put the black ink on, of course, and this is what we'd see day in and day out. I must, I mean, we'd probably see uh, 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 upwards of 10, uh, 10 of these a day. And of course, from Area 51, we see melanomas that make you wonder, does this guy have any mirrors in the bathroom? What is with this? Uh, or one so big, it, you can see it on a CT scan, for goodness sake. Honey, what's that on the side of your head? Oh, I don't know. It's just been there. It just came up yesterday. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, this guy, it isn't funny. I mean, he lived in a van down by the river. I mean, look at it. He goes into a podiatrist. I think something's wrong with my foot. Really? Well, in some cases, it's too late. Here's a melanoma med. This individual gave the history before he died. I was in the hospital where uh, I could interview him. Uh, he, had a, he had a beard on one side and not on the other. I said, well, what's, what, what's with this? He said, well, the water's only warm in one half of the bowl. Well, you know, when you have a uh, anatomic lesion in the brain like this, of course, uh, it can come out in some very strange behavior, and it did in that case. 
Well, challenging melanic lesions include um, uh, the um, lesion called after the New York pathologist Sophie Spitz from early 1900s. Spitz nevis, um, she published it as juvenile melanoma and was convinced it was just what kids get, their counterpart of melanoma. But it was later shown to be benign. Her eponym still was solidly attached to it, however. And I'd like to show you a case in a, a, a 33-year-old female that is just a little bit further along in a concern than an easily diagnosed juvenile Spitz nevis at age you know, five years old. We wouldn't even be talking about it. But when you put something like this on a 33-year-old female's face and she says, well, it wasn't there, um, uh, uh, it wasn't even there five months ago, and then was, we, we uh, uh, sometimes if you don't have a clinical picture, sometimes if you ask the patient, oh yeah, I, got, I, I remember I have a picture at home. So it's a way of uh, getting a, a clinical correlation to certain things. And that she produced this picture and it was uh, shaved off. Oh, I don't know if I mentioned, she works in a derm office. She's a helper in the dermatology office. And you can see the knife went along here, and it's dome-shaped, and it's rather symmetrical, as we would say. It has epidermal hyperplasia that is irregular. Melanomas efface epidermis. They go right up and squish it into a thin little band. Well, that's not happening here. It's really quite convoluted, as you can see. But there's a lot of these melanocytes, and boy, they look kind of wild, too. There's large ones and small ones, and dark ones. Uh, uh, there are multinucleated ones. Here's two nuclei, at least in that cell. Some have a lot of pigment. Some have, most have no pigment at all in this young lady's uh, lesion. Now, this classic Spitz nevus has this symmetry. It has epidermal hyperplasia. It has redundant base membrane material uh, with eponymically named. It uh, tends to have smaller cells as you go down. Little or no atypia at the same level on the lesion as you go down. The cells all look the same. Uh, that's reassuring. Mitotic activity is rare. Uh, Wedge-shaped configuration within dermis, not expansile. Single cells at the bottom rather than expansile nests, bigger than any nests up top. All of this uh, absence of the pagetoid scatter and epidermis, those would all be reassuring features. But uh, she violated several of these criteria. And so there is a category of atypical Spitz nevus that we are loath to lose, use, but when we, when we don't think something is outright malignant, even with division figures like this showing up in it, uh, in that location, uh, you know, this, is, this is where um, uh, some responsibility is being bitten off on both sides, mine and yours, is what's the alternative? Put a, uh, you know, two centimeter chunk out of this young lady's face or say this really doesn't have all the criteria for melanoma and let's um, just do a re-excision, see what's there, if anything. It might change our opinion about the Spitz idea or it may be uh, uh, reassuring. And that was done 
Here's uh, right after shave. And then here's seven months uh, later, and you can see it's a good result, limited re-excision. And she's had no further difficulty. And believe me, there is good follow-up because she works in a derm office. So there's no lymphadenopathy and so forth. And so we are confident we were correct in that this is a benign lesion, an atypical spitz nevus. It's not melanoma. But I just thought rather than showing you classic nevi, classic melanoma, I wanted to indicate that there is a very large middle group of problematic lesions uh, that uh, uh, require uh, multiple observers, and so it's good to, to uh, have external review of uh, some of these when the report begins to sound a little uh, concerning. Well, even that can be uh, fraught with uh, frustration because here were 30 melanocytic lesions that were reviewed by 10 expert pathologists that included classic spits, atypical spits, biologically indeterminate spits-like lesions that may or may not be spits, and unequivocal melanomas. No consensus could be reached about diagnosing spitz lesions or distinguishing them from melanomas using conventional criteria. One case thought to be a typical spitz by everybody there eventually resulted in the death of the patient. So it, this is an area where we hope molecular biology uh, is going to come and save us. Um, um, sampling a lymph node, I'm not sure that tells you really for sure anything about the biology and this question of borderline spits or not because, uh, well, uh, one can find nevus cells in 1 in 20 axillary lymph nodes. So uh, in, there, there's plenty of them in the room with us right now <laughs> with nevus cells in, in lymph nodes. So... Uh, that that's not the that's not the end all answer. Point three in my handout was back to detailed clinical summary augmented with clinical photos enhances the pathologist's ability to provide accurate and clinically relevant diagnoses. I'm going to give an embarrassing set of three cases to illustrate this right now. Uh, history on this biopsy from the presacral region was none. It was completely blank. Uh, after I made my uh, diagnosis, uh, the much later, embarrassingly enough, the uh, history was recounted as, reconstructed as a tender four to five centimeter skin nodule noticed in this 84-year-old female. Well, here is a epithelial tumor, kind of fenestrated with holes in it that loves perineural extension and has a mucinous product, which is the clear area, and focally stains like sweat gland cells with uh, 4S100, a, a, a marker we use also for melanoma, but sweat gland elements react for it. And so I diagnosed adenoid cystic carcinoma, a very rare type of ecrine Carcinoma. Why it had all the criteria, it didn't seem to bother me much that only 61 cases had been reported in the literature as of 08. But if you have this labeling for something called P63 and also for keratin 
the book says that's not a metastatic cancer. That's primary in the skin. And so I dubbed it such and sent it out and took some pictures and this and that. Well, let's see. Then the phone rang three weeks after sign-out. It was an oncologist. He calls me with the information the patient had had a prior breast cancer, and that was probably the primary uh, origin. And so I ran that down with further digging. Indeed, seven years before, there had been a mastectomy for carcinoma, and it was adenoid cystic type with probable lymphatic invasion. And here, here's the breast cancer. Here's the lymphatic invasion. Here's the perineural extension. Inner breast cancer from uh, seven years ago. Uh-oh. Uh, adenoid cancer of the breast, very rare itself. There's only 37 cases in a uh, tumor registry of 40,000 cases of breast cancer. These tend to be stay-at-home cancers. Hardly anybody has any trouble beyond a minor local recurrence with adenoid cystic cancer of the breast. Distant mets are uncommon, but they can occur without lymph node involvement, and they may be delayed for more than a decade, as this case, it turns out, proved. Well, this pattern also occurs in parotid lacrimal gland and in the no nose region, same kind of cancer pattern, and these have all given a skin met. You can find that in the literature. I can find no report of a breast adenoid cystic going to skin. But boy, this one went elsewhere too. Look at all of the disease in her PET scans showing in this lower lumbar region the destruction of vertebral bodies from this woman's um, metastatic breast cancer. And here's where the skin biopsy was from. Now, this radiologic study showed that the IV, the inferior vena cava was clogged. And so I believe there's a lot of uh, collateral venous circulation going on that carried adenoid cystic cancer from these deposits into uh, dermis and explains why it occurred there. All of this was known to, by the dermatologist. He even had a copy of the uh, uh, various scans that I'm showing you right here. History on the sheet, none. Where's Anybody got a Kleenex? I have egg all over uh, uh, here, you see. Uh, well, uh, that's, uh, that's one. Now, here's another case. A large crusted plaque on left medial shin of an 87-year-old female. Impression on the sheet, rule out squamous cell cancer. So I went right along with that. Uh, it looks like uh, ulcerated invasive squamous cell cancer uh, to me. Uh, I don't know what else you could possibly call it with this keratin accumulation down in dermis and the uh, cell prominent nucleoli like this and their division figures. Why, that's, a, that's I, squamous cell cancer. Next case, please. That's what the clinician thought it was. And then the phone rang. This was a month after sign-out. It was the Dermpath fellow from Stanford requesting a loan of this block. It was sent. Two weeks later, a letter from the same person says, this patient is no, well known at Stanford to have an aggressive CD8 positive epidermotrophic mycosis fungoides that characteristically, this special type, creates ulcerating skin lesions with hyperplasia. Uh-oh, here comes another egg. But can you see how uh, important historical details are? Uh, these are, I'm showing you the, 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 the major curveballs here, but uh, history's hard to come by day in, day out. Anyway, here's an uh, indication, back looking at the same slide, 
Look at these naughty little lymphocytes. They're the cancer here. This poor squamous epithelium is just trying to survive and increase its coverage of the surface. And you can see the labeling with the T cell marker CD3 that it's labeling all of these T, malignant T lymphocytes part of her CD8 positive mycosis fungoides that stirred this tibial lesion up that clinically mimicked squamous cell cancer and wasn't. Case three. Oh, did I mention those two phone calls on those two prior cases came in on the same day? I knocked the uh, Stanford lady off her chair laughing when I said, within 24 hours, I will get a third call. Because these things come in threes, you know. You probably witnessed that odd association that if you see one strange thing and another one, there's going to be another one right behind that. So anyway, here was a mobile subcutaneous lump present two years on lateral chest. Two years, there's this golf ball on the side of this woman's chest, and it's sent in as excision as a malignant sarcoma, histiocytoma, some mesenchymal tumor, and here's the epidermis over the top, and boy, it's sharply circumscribed, and it's very blue, and blue is bad. You can see it's well demarcated. It's not of epidermis, and it is made of smooth muscle cells that have a actin fiber net skeleton inside them that labels for this immunoreactant uh, actin, anti-actin. Uh, so uh, this would fit lyomyoma of skin quite well, but this would not because there are other areas in it where we had bizarre cells with abnormal division figures. How do you diagnose cancer? Too much variation, size, shape, and staining, SSS. And boy, this shows it all, doesn't it? Too much variation. And the larger cells are less differentiated and are losing their actin staining. So I diagnosed lyomyosarcoma. It occurs in dermis, subcutaneous tissue, deeper muscle. It can occur you know, uh, in any of these uh, layers. But in this case, it was in dermis, bulging into subcutaneous. And in general, that has a good prognosis. My diagnosis was, let's see here, oops. My diagnosis, if this is a multiple choice, <laughs> was lyomyosarcoma. And then the phone rang. I was coming off the uh, driveway onto Highway 1, and my cell phone went off. Now, this is 14 hours after I hung up on the Stanford girl. It was the dermatologist. The patient's son had told him that seven years before, she'd had a Whipple procedure for lyomyosarcoma. This is the guy that sent me the case. And would, might that be of interest? Well, it was of interest, and I traced it back to uh, Kansas, uh, where a report said she had a, car, a lyomyosarcoma of the duodenum. Now, that's pretty rare, uh, and that it had been successfully excised, but it showed major vein involvement in that specimen. Cancer is amazing stuff. Here's a golf ball of lyomyosarcoma metastatic from her duodenum that has sat on her lateral trunk for two years. When she, you know, a year ago, the dermatologist offered to take it out. She said, oh, no, it's okay. And so she just kept it. And then uh, she was in for something else. She said, come on, let me take that cyst out. Well, it wasn't any cyst. Well, nor was it primary lyomyosarcoma. 
Let's see. It was a metastasis. By 2007, there are only 16 reported cases of leiomyosarcoma metastatic to the skin, and a whole lot more primary ones. See, so I was on a little better ground in my uh, vacuum of knowledge of history on, on, on that one. They mostly come out of the GU uh, tract, but the single most common origin for a metliomyo to the skin is uterus. Uh, GI is uh, one of those 16, uh, one of the, three of the 16. Uh, it can come from blood vessel leiomyosarcomas, heart, breast, and retroperitoneum. Cutaneous mets can be the presentation of retroperitoneal leiomyosarcoma and should always you know, be, uh, evoke a search. So history helps, especially if it's legible. Can anybody in the room read that? I, 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 you wouldn't believe how much time on the telephone it requires to straighten, straighten this out. Oh, did somebody say they wrote this? Where are you anyway? <laughs> Finally, uh, a fourth point, tactful supplements to diagnosis in a report in a note uh, should be welcome. Such things as a differential diagnosis on a inflammatory skin disease, perhaps rebiopsy will be informative, a tumor goes to six o'clock peripheral dermal margin, a reference discussion uh, uh, so that you go into a room with a report with 14 references abstracted down on a rare condition and you're ready to go and talk to that patient just from that report. Uh, clinical laboratory tests like, hey, the RPR is positive. That's what these plasma cells are doing up there around the superficial venous plexus. Uh, patient cooperation and follow-up is recommended. That's a good phrase. If um, um, there's, there's something that really um, uh, should, should have close follow-up, rather than saying, you should follow this patient closely, there's a better way to say that. It's a patient cooperation and your follow-up program is, would be ideal. See, the whole uh, 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 shift of responsibility changes a little bit, but the message is clear. And then all during past has seen horrendous movies. I call them movies because the glass slide is one frame, but we've seen the movies enough to know where we are in that movie and what movie it is. In a lifetime, you may see it once. And in a lifetime, maybe we see it 20 times, or maybe more than that. It depends on the volume. Here's such a case. So if in such a case we say, uh, watch out for this thing, and there's a suggestion of what might be done um, for further workup or this or that, it's just trying to give you a head start. It's not being bossy or nosy. There is this condition called epithelioid sarcoma that likes the digits of young people. This girl's 24. She works in an oral surgeon's office nearby. And she developed this, and it took a year and a half till it was finally biopsied as cutaneous metastases began marching up her arm. And I saw her in clinic and felt that arm, and it was lumpy all the way up to the axilla. 
so in a year and a half, this soft tissue sarcoma had colonized much of the arm. I arranged for her treatment at UCLA, and she's been on chemotherapy for a year and a half, and it isn't working. So this is the devastating natural history illustrated by epithelioid sarcoma. It is a unique tumor in that it labels not only for the epithelial marker uh, keratin, but also vimentin. It is a sarcoma. There are very few sarcomas that label for both a mesenchymal marker vimentin and a epithelial marker keratin, but this is one of them. It's called epithelioid sarcoma because the cells are rounded and they look like keratinocytes or epithelial cells. Uh, well, anyway, this is uh, a year and a half difference. It's epidermotrophic like melanoma. It likes to go uh, to skin proximally. starts in the extremities. Here is a, oop, that's, that's pretty much the last slide, but see, year and a half, same lesion. Got a little ulcerated on the top, but it is bigger, and unfortunately it doesn't seem to be uh, working. So uh, I guess I... I uh, Try to illustrate here how the clinical yours and sending pictures can work with our histo, and together we can solve uh, these uh, sticky problems, particularly with a uh, excellent uh, history being provided, giving us a head start and keeping us from saying absurd uh, things that we're all just going to have to take back in a, in a week or two with, after the phone call. Thanks for your attention. Oh, I guess it breaks over, right? Anybody have a question? I'd be glad to entertain it. Uh, any info on uh, amelanotic melanoma, any pearls of wisdom that, that you can share with us? Uh, it just, just that it can look like anything. Yeah. <laughs> it can look like pyogenic uh, granuloma. It can look like a polypoid seborrheic keratosis. It can look like an intradermal nevus. Um, very scary. Um, um, an, an album of, of the many faces would, would require several pages with six on a page. Uh, I'm sorry, I have, we, need, we need kind of a magic wand, don't we? That's, uh, and maybe someday we'll have that. I'm not sure the dermatoscope is that wand because there's no pigment there to have a good look. But the, you know, the history of something new, well, you know, if it's a, oh, 55-year-old uh, and I, I never had anything there before and it's fairly rapidly developed, it's not a seborrheic keratosis. This, this story triggers the biopsy uh, so often in addition to the morphology. Thank you. I have a question about Spitz nevi. Um, between atypical Spitz nevi and atypical Spitz neoplasm, are they the same? Are they different? Uh, once again? Atypical Spitz nevus versus atypical Spitz neoplasm. I've seen oh, a... Oh, uh, uh, well, uh, Spitz nevi... Have, that has synonyms. Uh, Spitz neoplasm is a synonym, and okay. Spitz tumor is a, 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 a currently in vogue synonym. But a lot of 
a lot of you practitioners don't want to see the T word on your reports. And so I'm inclined to continue the N word, uh, Nevis, Spitz Nevis. It served well for almost a century. And my other question is, um, do you recommend excision or re-excision of Spitz Nevi without the atypical feature? Without what? Without atypical, if it's just commented oh, uh -huh. as Spitz Nevis. If, if the margins uh, look clear, I believe enough has been done. On the other hand, if Spitz Nevis uh, is incompletely excised, I asked this question at uh, AAD one time. And I said, show of hands for those who would re-excise and incompletely excise Spitz Nevis. There's about 75% of people raise their hands in there. So that's the answer to your question. Thank you.